All right, hey, so uh, welcome back. Christmas is almost here. Yeah, for some you cheer, for some it's, it's not so much cheering, it's dread, right? All right, how many of you got your Christmas shopping totally done? I hate you. All right, I hate you, yeah. All right, how many of you wait till Christmas Eve? I'm with you, I'm with you, I like that. All right, pressure elevates your game, that's the way that works. Hey, um, one of the things I was thinking about uh, the other day as I was kind of thinking about Christmas and all that kind of stuff, I don't know about your house, at our house we've had the Christmas tree up for a little while, we even have lights outside our house this year, which is a, a new thing for us, I typically have been totally against that idea because it involves me and the cold and hanging lights, but this year my mother-in-law and daughter did it, so I didn't have to worry about it. Shut up, all right? So, and I was thinking about this, but uh, in the busyness of Christmas, maybe this scenario has happened. Wow. That's cool. All right. Maybe this scenario has happened in your house, um, kind of like it's happened in mine. In the busyness of shuffling family from one house to the next or having people over, at the end of the Christmas season, sometime following New Year's Day when you take down your tree, you go to take down your tree and you find underneath the tree, way in the back with a lot of dust on it now, one present. That was left unopened, um, either because it just got pushed to the back and was totally forgotten about or because the person that it was for didn't show up this year. Either way, it sat under the tree totally unopened and unenjoyed by the person who it was intended for. And that got me to thinking about the, the best Christmas movie of all time, uh, Christmas Vacation. Um, that, that's, that's an undisputed fact, just in case you were wondering. Miracle on 34th Street, no. White Christmas puts me to sleep. I'll watch Christmas Vacation a hundred times over and it's never too many, all right? When I was thinking about Christmas Vacation and there's this scene in Christmas Vacation where Clark is up in the attic, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, he's hiding Christmas presents in the eaves of the attic. And as he's kind of putting those things up there, he discovers like three gifts that are like over a decade old that they had forgotten about that were left up in the attic. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking that there is a gift that's been given to us that we've forgotten about. There's a gift that's been given to us that, that's been kind of left under the tree, so to speak. And the, the gift that I'm talking about, and I'm hoping this is going to be a good word for you to hear right now, is this thing called rest. In fact, I don't, I don't know about you, but Christmas is one of those times of year where it's really easy to get caught up in everything. And by the end of New Year's, I don't know about you, but sometimes you find yourself going, I'm ready to go back to work. I'm ready to send the kids back to school. I'm ready to get back in our routine so we can actually take a breath. It's easy for the Christmas season to become this never-ending marathon that runs from Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's Day. And by the end of it, most of us are just kind of barely crawling across the finish line. Like, like have you ever gotten to the end of the Christmas season and said to yourself or your spouse or someone in your family, Phew, man, let's never do that again. You ever been there? I, I've been there before. Our, our first couple of years, I've been out here like almost five years now. Our first couple of years out here, Allie and I uh, would get on a plane around Christmas with two babies and fly back to Kentucky. And I would, uh, yeah, being in an airport with babies around Christmas, bad idea. All right, really bad idea. And, and we would get back there and I literally had to, back then I had like a Blackberry type thing before I became a Christian and got an iPhone. And... Um, <laughs> I had to keep my my calendar while we were on Christmas vacation. I had to schedule out my day more than I had to schedule out my day than when I was at work because of all the lunches and coffees and breakfasts and dinners and parties and things like that. And after several days of that, we would fly back home, go through all that and be in this kind of fog and this haze. And we would look at each other, Allie and I, and we would say, why do we do this to ourselves? Anyone ever been there? Yeah. 
So I think the gift we most often leave under the tree is this thing called rest. Why do I refer to rest as a, as a gift? Because that's exactly what it is. From the very beginning, God established for us a, a way that we should approach living our lives. In other words, God, from the very beginning, demonstrated a rhythm, if you will, to the way our lives and our bodies work best. When God created the universe, the heaven, the moon, the stars, the earth, everything on it, the Bible kind of recounts that story in the form of days. Now, we're not going to get into some argument about, was it 24-hour literal days? Was it like a 1,000 years? We're not going to, that's, that's another thing for another day, all right? God worked and created and did good work for six days, and on the seventh day, he ceased. He rest. He stopped. And here's the thing. Um, Even if you don't believe in God, you may be going, well, if there is a God, I doubt that he needs to take a nap. All right. So you'd be right. God doesn't need a nap. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't get tired. So when God ceased, when he stopped, when he rested, he was doing something different. He was trying to model for us the ebb and the flow to the way our lives were meant to be lived. Then if you, if you fast forward in the biblical story just a, several hundred years, what, what you'll find out is that um, there was this group of people known as the Hebrew people that had been enslaved in a place called Egypt for 400 years. They've been in slavery and through a very cool series of events, they're liberated. They're set free from their bondage and they, they head out on this journey to a place that kind of became famously known as the promised land and later was called Israel. And while they were on that journey from Egypt to the promised land, God, through this man named Moses, gave this group of millions and millions of former slaves laws to live by. Because here's the thing. All they had ever known was a paradigm of slavery, which is actually very simple. It goes kind of like this. You do what your master says or he kills you. It's not a great way to live, but it's a simple way to live. Now they're free, which is a much better way to live, but by the way, a much more complicated way to live. And so God does this amazing thing for them. He actually gives them laws pointing to the best way to live. He gives them objective truth to point to, to help them live well together in community. And one of the laws that he gave this group of former slaves was this. For six days, you guys can travel, you can work, you can journey, you can, you can gather, you can hunt, you can farm, you can build. For six days, you should work really, really hard. But on the seventh day, mandatory day of rest. It's a law. It was known as the Sabbath. The word Sabbath literally means to cease, to stop, to rest, to, to put away for a time. And time out for a second. Let me ask you a question. Can, can you think of a better gift to give a group of former slaves, people who've never had a day off in their entire life, than a mandatory day of rest? That's a beautiful gift, isn't it? That's a beautiful gift, and it was more than just rest. In other words, it wasn't just sit around and do nothing. No, it was, it was supposed to be a day of reflection, a day of worship, a day of eating, a day of playing, a day of celebrating, a day of laughing, a day of enjoying family and friends. It was God's gift literally to his people. God was establishing them for them a, a rhythm to their life. And this pattern of their life was really remarkable. And it wasn't just for people, it was also for uh, their animals and for their land. Once they established and had kind of their own land, one of the things that went along with the Sabbath was every seventh year, if you were a farmer, you were supposed to let your field rest. You were supposed to let it go fallow. Don't touch it, don't plow it, don't plant, leave it alone. Let it breathe for a season. 
And here's the truth. Any farmer or scientist, for that matter, will tell you, yeah, that's the best way to farm your land. You have to let it rest. See, even the earth functions best in this rhythm of work and rest. And my question is, could the same be true for you and me? See, I find it really, really ironic that one of the things, one of the many things that Jesus came to show you and me to demonstrate for us, to give us, in fact, this thing called rest is perhaps the thing that we tend to neglect the most at and around Jesus's birthday. Christmas. And you may be saying, Scott, what is time out for a second? I've been coming here for the past couple of weeks. We've been in this thing called coal Christmas on another level. What does any of this have to do with coal? I thought coal was all about us doing things. What does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with the things that we're doing that we're writing down that we put in that clear box out there? What is that? It has everything to do with it. In case you haven't been around here, let me kind of catch up the past couple of weeks. Cole is us as a group of people just trying to take some small steps in a direction, doing some things in our community and for each other that we believe best reflect who Jesus' heart beats for. We're just trying to do some things that we're going, you know what? Um, This is what we think Jesus cares about the most. In fact, last week, if you were here, Jim challenged us to not just do this at, at Christmas time during the Christmas season, but he said, what if we did this like Once a month, we just took some small steps in that direction and we passed out stickers and a bunch of you put like these little red dots on your calendar. Some of you downloaded the iPhone app and all that kind of stuff to remind us to take those steps throughout the whole year. Christmas on another level. What if we did that? And you guys are doing some amazing things. There's some cool stuff happening around here. Here's just a few of them I pulled off the website this week. One person said this, I cooked a meal for a friend with cancer. Another person said, I got a single mom of three housing for three months. I love this next one. Listen to this. I gave a homeless guy $5 or $20. I can't remember which. All I know is I didn't have much left in my wallet. All right. Very cool. One kid said this. I wrote a thank you note to the lunch ladies at my school. That's cool. It's been awesome. It's a great challenge in this church. You guys, man, we've really, really stepped up. And it's been amazing to hear the stories. They're just all over the website. And here's the thing, though. Here's the thing I know about me, and I suspect it's probably true of a lot of us in here. I can get all jazzed up about a challenge. I can get all emotionally amped up to do stuff, the right stuff. And it's very easy, especially during a real nostalgic time like like Christmas, to do that. But my question is this. Let me get real honest with myself. Maybe we can all get honest with ourselves right now. Do I really think I'm going to feel like doing this in August? Like when that little red dot shows up on the calendar on the 25th of August... What's that going to feel like? But you know what? Put, put August somewhere else. Let's, let's be real. What about February? I hate February. I think it's the worst month out of the year. For a lot of people, it's January. The only reason January works for me is because a lot of my friends and family and I have birthdays in January. But I'm telling you, once February comes around, like right now, I'm in the mode of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Not in February. Uh-uh. In February, I'm more in the mode of, dear God, make it warmer, please. And I'm sick of being in the house with all these people. You know, I mean, it's like, please. Most of us, let's, let's just be honest, the way we live our lives, if we keep running at the pace that we're running, especially right now, we'll be lucky to get to January 31st with any gas left in the tank. And in regards to this thing called coal, Christmas on another level, what was once a joy during Christmas by February will feel like a heavy obligation. You'll see that little red dot on your calendar and you'll start to feel guilty. And by June, you'll probably have pulled all those dots off your calendar or removed the iPhone app because feeling guilty is no fun at all, right? 
So, so how do we do this? And I don't think we can is the answer unless. Unless we can figure out a way to establish a rhythm to our lives that will help us sustain this type of living all year long. And that's what I want to look at tonight. How do we do that? And the best way to figure that out, I think, is to look at this person named Jesus. If you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 12. If not, pull out your program there. All the scriptures should be in there. It'll also be up on the, the screens over here. And as you're getting to Matthew chapter 12, let me, let me kind of set this up for you, all right? Jesus lived during a time where a lot of people, specifically religious people, a group that we're going to look at tonight known as the Pharisees, they had taken, among other things, this thing called the Sabbath, and they had distorted it beyond recognition. They had taken this beautiful gift that God had given to people, and they had spoiled it, ruined it, and abused it. They took a living, breathing, beautiful thing and dissected it, and in so doing, killed it. What I mean is this... um, In Jesus' day, there were different teachers known as rabbis. And every rabbi had his own interpretation of the Old Testament law. And his interpretation, along with his own rules and regulations that he added to the already existing 613-some-odd laws in the Old Testament. So if you decided that you wanted to follow that rabbi, you were putting yourself under that rabbi's authority... All the rules and regulations of the Old Testament, plus the ones that he had added on to the Old Testament. And they referred to that set of teachings that each rabbi had as their yoke. So so if you were to follow that rabbi, you would take their yoke upon you. And that included all their rules and regulations about the Sabbath. So one of the things they did was, is they took the Sabbath and they were very concerned about making sure that they didn't violate the Sabbath by accidentally working on the Sabbath. So they started to really define work to the degree of the absurd. So some rabbis added rules like this. On the, on the Sabbath, you were allowed to tie and untie knots as long as you could do it with only one hand. If it required two hands to tie and untie the knot, you were guilty of violating the Sabbath. Or how about another one? I've mentioned this one around here, but I think it just illustrates it really, really well. You weren't allowed to make mud on the Sabbath, which meant you weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath because if you spit on the ground in the dirt, you might make mud. And here's why. Because if someone steps in the mud, they're then going to have to clean off their shoes before they enter their house, and that would be work, and it would be your fault for making them work, so now you violated the Sabbath. It was crazy. It was, it was ridiculous. Now, here's the other thing, all right? Jesus, one of the many things I love about Jesus, was so opposed to the ridiculousness of these rules, Jesus would intentionally break their rules just to make them mad. He wouldn't break God's original law. The essence of the Sabbath he kept every time. No, no, no. But all the stuff that had been tacked on and added on by all the religious guys, he broke the rules all the time, which I love because I'm a rule breaker by nature. All right? So I go, go Jesus. Awesome. All right? For example, one time Jesus, you might remember this story, There was this blind man that was brought to him, and Jesus had been healing lots of people, and he decides he's going to heal this blind man when it happens to be the Sabbath. And Jesus does something really unusual, even for Jesus. He spits on the ground, makes mud, and wipes it in the dude's eyes and tells him to go wash it off in the pool, and then he'll be healed. And he is. And all the religious people care nothing about this man who's been blind for his entire life. They freak out because Jesus did what? Made mud on the Sabbath. Jesus did it on purpose just to get their goat. Now, 
We're getting ready to dive into Matthew chapter 12. And here's the thing I want you to to remember. Whenever you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that's kind of called the Gospels in the New Testament, and you see the phrase, on the Sabbath, you should listen. You should perk up because you know Jesus is going to do something controversial and the religious people are going to get all ticked off. All right, so check this out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. There it is. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. One of their interpretations of the law was that you weren't allowed to pick grain on the Sabbath, which had nothing to do with God's original law or the intent of the Sabbath. It was just one of the things that they had tacked on. It was another religious rule. So in typical fashion, these Pharisees are doing what they do best. They point fingers, they confront people that they perceive to be doing it all wrong. And I love the way Jesus responds, because not only is Jesus a rule breaker, he has the spiritual gift of sarcasm, all right? Which is a spiritual gift, all right? So here we go, verse, verse 3. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Now, time out. The sarcasm is really easy to miss unless you realize that when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to a bunch of religious guys who not only have read about David, this character in the Old Testament, they've read the whole Old Testament so many times that they have basically, most of these guys had most of the Old Testament memorized. But Jesus looks at him and goes, haven't you guys read? They're not happy. All right. Look at this. Verse, uh, verse four. He's talking about King David. He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So, so here's the kind of the backstory, right? King David was not just a king. He was once a military like general. And so he was out leading this mission one time and he came through town with a bunch of starving soldiers. And the only thing that they had available to eat was some of the bread that was in the temple that was not allowed to be eaten by anybody but the priest at the end of the day on the Sabbath. But they ate it anyway. And they ate it anyway because David knew something fundamental about the Sabbath law. The heartbeat of the Sabbath law was this simple principle. Human life always takes priority over religious ritual. Human life always takes priority over religious ritual. Human need was more important because the heartbeat of the Sabbath, again, its original intent was a gift from God to his people to help them establish a healthy rhythm to the way that they lived their lives that was sustainable and helpful. The Sabbath was meant to serve people, not the other way around. And the Pharisees had missed the point terribly. Look at verse 5. Or haven't you read, he's doing it again, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? What Jesus is pointing to is a very simple fact. He's saying, listen, you guys all go to like temple and synagogue on on the Sabbath and you rest and you worship and you pray and you eat and you do all that kind of stuff. It's a great day of rest for you. It's not for the priests in the temple. They're doing their job. So it, the comparison is, is simple. It's, it's the exact same thing. Like for a lot of us, Saturday and Sunday are days of rest. Not for Randy. It's not for Jim. It's, it's not for me on weekends I'm up here. It's not. So we take different days of the week off, like a Monday or Friday or something like that. Jesus is simply pointing out that while these guys are so interested in dissecting the Sabbath down to the minutiae, what they're doing is they're missing the huge overarching point, and the Sabbath has been rendered useless for them. Pick it up in verse 6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Now, this is Jesus getting a little bit crazy right here, because Jesus is talking about himself. 
And he's pushing the envelope. He's saying something to a group of people. When they walked by the temple, it was huge. I mean, it was massive. It was beautiful and it was ornate. And Jesus is going, I'm greater than that. A little religious system you got going on over there? I'm like over it. I'm in charge of it. (laughs) I get to set the rules because I'm God. Look at verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Talking about his disciples. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is really bringing the heat now. He's quoting from the Old Testament again, something they know really well. Hosea 6.6, which says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, this is really important. This is really key. Jesus is more interested in the heart of worship than the form of worship. Jesus is more interested in the spirit of worship than the ritual of worship. He's more interested of the, in the inside than the outside. And if one thing is true, the Pharisees had missed it at every level. They had missed the heart, the spirit, the intent, all of it. And the Sabbath was just one example of how they had taken something that was meant to be a gift to a group of people and they had become absolute slaves to it. These guys were exhausting themselves trying to follow all the rules of the Sabbath. And by doing so, they missed the entire point of the Sabbath, which is really two things. Boil it all down. The Sabbath is about two words, rest and worship. Rest and worship. Now, a little later, Jesus really pushes the envelope. Look at this, verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. So, just time out for a second. Jesus, every Sabbath would go to the synagogue or the temple to, to worship, to pray, to listen to teaching, to sing, all that kind of stuff. And we'll kind of get to that in a little bit. But look at verse 10. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So as usual, the Pharisees are looking for a way to trap Jesus. In other words, they know that Jesus has been healing people and they think that healing on the Sabbath should qualify as work. And so now they think they're being very clever. They think they're putting Jesus in an unwinnable situation. They're going, all right, we'll trap him. Uh, if he heals the guy, then we'll, te- we'll, we'll accuse him of breaking the law. If he doesn't heal the guy, well, then he loses his credibility with his audience. All the people he's been helping and all the poor he's been been helping and all the sick he's been healing and all that kind of stuff so we'll make him look like a really mean uncompassionate guy interestingly enough an ancient commentator tells us that this man with the shriveled hand was a was a mason not like a not like a freemason like a bricklayer all right so with a bum hand he's unable to probably support his family and provide for his family and so jesus knows this he sees this and in the usual way jesus Volleys the ball back into their court. Pick it up in verse 11. Jesus said to them, If any of you... So he's asking them a question. Hey guys, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? There's a reason there's an exclamation point at the end of that. Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, it's right to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus, again, is trying to direct their heartbeat back to what the Sabbath was all about, which was this principle that life is of higher value than rules. And it even applied to their livestock. It was written into the original law. If your sheep, your ox, your cow, your donkey, whatever, falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, don't worry about it being work. Pull the thing out of the ditch and don't let it die. 
But the Pharisees had this so jacked up that they had added so many laws and rules to this thing that they literally said, if a man, a man, if a man breaks his leg on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to set the bone. And Jesus is trying to go, guys, you're ridiculous. What's the matter with you? And now he's pointed out that they missed the point. He's going to do something about this man. Look at verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus honors the Sabbath by valuing a person more than rules. And this infuriates the religious people so much that this is one of the moments that provokes them to start plotting and planning his murder. In Mark's telling of this story, Jesus says this kind of in the middle of these stories. He says, the Sabbath was made for a man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, you guys are letting the tail wag the dog. You guys have become a slave to something that was meant to serve you. You've got it backwards. So, so hear me, all right? Let's talk about us for a second. I'm afraid that's happened to a lot of us. We've become slave to something that was meant to serve us. So many of us during Christmas and probably all throughout the year as well, we've become slaves. And if we're honest, we're really, really tired. And Christmas just further illustrates that truth for a lot of us. So what do we do? How do we move in a direction of sustainability with this whole coal thing? If we're really going to try to take Christmas to another level, so much so that each month we're going to try to take steps to do things that will line up with what Jesus' heart beats for, how in the world could we sustain that kind of effort? How are we going to do that? I think we have to establish a rhythm to our lives that prioritizes two things each week. So last week we talked about once a month. This week we're talking about once a week. And those two things, you got it, would be rest and worship. Rest and worship. Those are the two things that were of the essence with the Sabbath and the two things that God knew that we needed to set aside time for regularly to build into our lives in order for us to live the best kind of life. So so let's talk about rest for a second. All right, because if you're anything like me, you probably don't do this very well. You probably have a tendency to kind of go and go and go until you get really mad and crash and everybody around you feels it. And honestly, let's be honest, there's something kind of addicting about that. There's something that kind of feeds the ego about that, something that makes you kind of feel good about yourself. It's kind of like, you may not say it out loud, but internally you've got this sense of, man, if if they didn't have me, the whole world would fall apart. Look at how many plates I can spin. I mean, if I left this place, if I wasn't a part of this place, what would they do without me? I ought to just take a day off just so they could see it sometime. You ever had that kind of going on in your mind and your heart? Um, Allie and I just got back from vacation a couple of weeks ago. We were uh, celebrating 10 years of, of marriage, our 10-year wedding anniversary, which isn't actually till here in a couple of weeks, but this month's too crazy to go on vacation. So we did it last month. And uh, 10 years ago on our honeymoon, we, we kind of looked at each other and went, Let's make a goal that 10 years from now, on our 10th wedding anniversary, we'll come back to this place. And so we've been saving for a long time, and that's exactly what we did. We we got on a plane and flew to a faraway sandy beach for eight days without children. It was wonderful, all right? Um, We saw people there with children, our children's age. And I vividly remember seeing this like four-year-old little boy melting down on his dad on the beach. And Allie and I just took another sip of our fruity drink and smiled and walked on. You know, it was just like, wow, this is awesome. Now, 
It was the first time since our honeymoon we'd done a vacation with, with just the two of us. And the first time in seven years we'd done any kind of trip without kids. And Allie and I, we, we realized several things on our trip. One of those was we realized ten years was way too long. <laughs> all right, It was way too long. A decade, too long. All right, We were more tired than we even realized. That was another thing. Here's how I, I know, one of the ways I know. I, I get up really, really early every day. That's just kind of how I'm wired. That, that's, that's the way I work. Whatever, all right? On vacation even, when we take our kids on vacation with us, I'll get up before the sunrise. Specifically, if we go to the beach, um, I'll get up before the sunrise, go out and swim in the ocean while it's still kind of dark, watch the sunrise, and, and just kind of get some alone time so that I don't explode at some point during the day. That's kind of the way I have to operate, all right? On this trip with just me and Allie, I didn't see anything even close to a sunrise, all right? I slept more on this trip. I, I slept more on this trip than I did since college, all right? I didn't know I could sleep like that. I really, really didn't. I told Allie the other day after we got back, I said, I don't think I realized it, but I, I think I was more physically, spiritually, mentally fatigued than I've ever been in my whole life leading up to that trip. And she said the exact same thing. Why? Well, I don't know. Three young kids, ministry, family, you know, life. Life. And here's the thing, when you're in the middle of life, you just do what it takes to get through it. And while you know that you're tired, dwelling on being tired doesn't help you accomplish all that needs to be accomplished, so you, you just kind of get used to operating on fumes, don't we? And here's the thing I learned. Sometimes it's not until you stop and rest that you realize just how badly you needed to stop and rest. It's true. And it's not just rest for rest's sake. That's enough, but there's more. What do you mean? I mean this. Rest is so that you can do better with what's most important. So for Allie and I, vacation was so that we could come home and be better husband and wife to each other, better parents to our kids, so that we could become more rested and restored and refocused and recharged, so that I could serve this church well, so I could study and teach and lead well, so that I could be a better pastor, so that we could be better friends to our friends. All of that is all for a reason. In fact, here's the other thing I kind of realized. When you know you have rest coming, like you can see it in the near future, it helps you get through whatever storm you're in the middle of right then. Like for me, the week before we left for vacation was honestly just a really horrible week. And we had every member in our family get sick at different times. I was teaching that weekend right before we left. It was baptism weekend, which was an awesome thing, but I lost my voice. And there was just all these millions of things that went on. But knowing that I was getting on that plane on Tuesday, (laughs) man, that helped. It helped a lot. See, here's the thing. Rest helps on the front end and on the back end so that we can do our best with what matters most. Jesus did this really, really well. The Bible tells us that Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place so that he could pray, so that he could rest, so that he could recharge. But it was always with his mission and his purpose in mind so that he could go back to what was most important with renewed energy and strength to accomplish his purpose. And some of you still aren't with me. Some of you are going, Scott, this is a great sermon for them. I, that's just not me. Maybe, maybe you're going, Scott, that's a great sermon for, for somebody in my family who's not as strong as I am. But um, for me, I'm good. I'm okay. I'll rest when I'm dead. You ever said that? Okay, let me answer that question. It's not really a question. It's a statement, so let me respond to it for you. Okay, you'll be dead sooner. No, I'm not. Like, we chuckle. I'm serious. Like, you'll be dead sooner. 
And it would be a very, very noble way to go out, won't it? With everybody else standing around going, why did they drive themselves into the ground? See, here's the thing. You don't have to believe in God to know that what I'm saying tonight is true. One way you can know that what I'm saying tonight is true is you could lift weights. If you're in here and you're a weightlifter, you know what? Let me ask you a question. When do your muscles grow and get stronger? Is it when you're lifting weights? No. (laughs) When do they get stronger? When you're sleeping, when you're resting, when you're taking days off. You can lift weights seven days a week all you want. Guess what will happen? You'll get weaker. That's what will happen. You build in some days to rest and plug those in and you'll get stronger. So, so let me take this back to all of us. You can go hard seven days a week. You can do that. You can go hard seven days a week with this thing called life and you'll hurt yourself and those you love most. Or you can do this. And this is really, really hard to do. Okay? This is really hard to do. You can admit something. It goes like this. I'm not God. I'm not God. See, one of the main focuses of the Sabbath, especially for for Jewish people, was this. uh, The Sabbath began on sundown for them. And so, in in essence, the first thing you did on the Sabbath, the first thing you did was go to sleep. And that was important because that was an expression of admitting I'm not God. And going, God, I believe that the world will still rotate while I'm not paying any attention at all. And admitting that when you wake up in the morning, God's not sitting on the end of your bed with his hands just ringing, going, it's about time you got up. I didn't know what to do while you were sleeping. (laughs) Could you give me some advice about, you know, Southeast Asia? No. Guess what? God's got it under control. But a lot of us, including me, live like we're God. One of the main points of resting is letting go of your ego. So what's that look like? looks like a million things. It looks like turning off your phone sometimes or leaving it somewhere, you know, not checking email, staying away for it, from it. Whatever tends to suck you in, you got to stay away from that for seasons in your life, a day during the week, something like that. Remember there's a God and you're not him. So it's rest for a reason so you can be stronger at what matters most. And the second part to the Sabbath is this, it's worship. Worship, which in part is, and I want to give you the whole picture of worship here for a minute. In part is, just like it was for Jesus, he, he went to synagogue while he was in, or while he was in Jerusalem. He would go to temple to sing, to pray, to listen to teaching. And for us, the equivalent would be going to church to sing, to pray, to listen to teaching. So what I'm about to say might sound kind of self-serving, but I'm hoping you know me well enough to know my heart in this, all right? The stories we hear around here about people's lives changing... Millions of different stories from all kinds of different contexts. I mean, it really is amazing the diversity in this place, especially with our stories. But there's a couple things that seem to weave their way through almost every story we hear around here. Number one, there's always this God element to the story. It goes something like this. My life was headed in this direction, and I couldn't change it. I couldn't fix it. Other people tried to fix me and change me. But God's doing something in me and through me that I couldn't do for myself and nobody else could ever do for me. Right? Something like that always weaves its way through people's stories around here. The second thing, thing is this. That transformation, that change, seems to consistently run in congruence with a commitment to be a part of this place consistently. In other words, people tend to see their lives change around here the more they're a part of this place. 
Now, please understand what I'm not doing. I am not trying to lay a guilt trip and go, you need to be at church more often. I'm not trying to pad our stats. I'm just saying, all right, it's undeniably true that life change seems to be connected to schedule change. It just does. As people make being a part of this church a regular part of their life, over time, God seems to be doing some amazing things. Scott, are you saying that I have to go to church to go to heaven? No. Not saying that at all. Hey, when I go on vacation, guess where I don't go? Church. All right? It's never happened. I've never gone, on, gone to church on vacation. Are you saying I'm not a good person if I miss church? I'm sure there's a million reasons you might not be a good person. Missing church is not one of them. All right? That's, that's not it. Are you guys going to start like taking roll and like making us fill out cards and like sending us a state? No. All right. I hope you know us well enough to know. No, none of that is true. I'm just saying that rarely does anyone point to one weekend where everything changed in their life. Rarely do I have somebody come up to me and go that one sermon you or Jim gave that my whole life from that moment on has been totally different. That that rarely ever is said to us. It's, it's kind of similar to going from out of shape to in shape. You don't know when you exactly went from being out of shape or the other way around, for example. Either way, you don't know when it exactly happened. You just know you look in the mirror and you're different than you were when you began, right? Same is true around here. I can't tell you how often I hear people go, you know what? Over the past six weeks, over the past six months, over the past year, God's doing some things in our life. And we can't put our finger on when it like happened. But things are different. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying God has put a gift out there for us. And it's up to to us if we want to leave it under the tree or whether we want to open it. And part of opening that gift involves being a part of this place regularly. And believe me, all right, I love to go skiing. And there are a lot of things to do on weekends in the state of Colorado, all right? It just... It's just up to me to decide what's most important. And my time, whether I like it or not, always reflects what I believe to be true and what I believe to be most important in my life. Now, here's what this all has to do with Cole. Christmas on another level, all right? I've taught on this next verse. Go ahead and throw it on the screens. I don't know how many times around here, but I want to look at it one, one more time because this is fundamental to the heartbeat of, of Jesus and fundamental to the heartbeat of this place. Look at this, James one twenty seven. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, let, let, me, let me undo some things you might already be assuming based on that verse, all right? The word religion is actually best literally translated from the original Greek, worship. Because I don't know about you, when I hear religion, I think a list of things I have to do or don't do in order to earn God's approval. And if there's anything that we've learned around here, that's not what Christianity is about. It's not religion. It's about a relationship, all right? Religion, all right, or worship, which our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless. In other words, the kind of worship that God looks at and goes, that's it. That's exactly what I'm looking for. That hits the bullseye. That is, that is of the essence of what I'm talking about when I say worship. Listen, is not us showing up in here and singing songs. That's not it. That's part of it. This is worship. It's not the heartbeat of worship. Just so you know, what is? Cole is. Everything we've been doing, writing that thank you note out to the lunch ladies at your school, that's pure worship. 
Five or 20 bucks to the homeless guy. Pure worship. All right? Everything you've been writing down and putting in that clear box. That phrase, looking after, looking after orphans and widows in their distress, it literally means to go visit. It means to get skin on skin. It means to have a face-to-face, real-time interaction with orphans and widows or simply the most vulnerable, isolated, hurting, and exploited people you can find. And then he closes it all out by saying, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Here's what that doesn't mean, despite what you might have heard in church growing up, all right? It has nothing to do with what kind of music you listen to. It has absolutely nothing to do with what kind of movies you watch. It has nothing to do with whether you drink beer or don't drink beer. It has nothing to do with whether you cuss or not. It has nothing to do with any of that. Here's what that means. When it says, don't get polluted by the world, it means literally, don't get swept away in the prevailing winds of a culture that says, Get yours at the expense of everybody else. Don't get caught up in a system that isolates and wounds the most vulnerable people on the planet. Don't do that. Don't be average. Don't be like everybody else. Be on another level. So what's that mean right now? It means this. Don't get caught up in the frenzy called the holiday season. Don't exhaust yourself doing a bunch of things and forget about the main thing. And what would that be? That God sent his one and only son to this earth so that he could restore a broken relationship he has with us and restore the the rhythm to our lives that he intended for us to always have. So how do we make sure that we're doing Christmas on another level in February, March, and August? The only way for us to do that is to build into the rhythm of our lives rest and worship. Um, I'm not a musician. I think you knew that. All right. I can't play an instrument. I tried once in college, like everybody's supposed to. I tried to play guitar for a semester and it went horribly wrong. All right. Um, I have no rhythm. Okay. I I can't, I can play the chords. I just can't make it sound like music. And I, I hang out with some musicians. You'll see some of them here in a second. And I know lots of musicians and they all agree with this next statement I'm about to make. Music is less about knowing when to play. It's more about knowing when not to play. It's knowing when to rest. In other words, you know this, a constant banging on a drum is just obnoxious. A constant wailing away on a guitar is just noise, but rhythm involves both rest and playing so that you can make something else called music. And that's what God wants us to do with our lives. See, strangely enough, right before... Um, Those stories that we've been working through in in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually said this. And I'm going to read you two different versions of this. Listen to this first one. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you, give me the word, rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And several years ago, a guy named Eugene Peterson uh, took the Bible and just kind of wrote it in real understandable terms for his people. He's a pastor of a church, and so that's what he did. It's become known as the message translation of the Bible. And he says it this way. I think it captures it really well. Listen to this. Are you tired? You worn out? You burn out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. 
Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Does that sound like anything a lot of us would like to have this Christmas? Me too. Let's pray. God, come before you. Um, A lot of us burdened, (laughs) feeling really, really heavy as we came in here with lists of many things we think we need to accomplish and get done. And it's pretty overwhelming. And God, some of us are exhausted and Christmas isn't even here yet. So God, um, would you take these next few moments to just help us breathe? To rest? Would you give us the wisdom to know when not to play and when to play? And would you help us with our lives to make music that honors you? In Jesus' name, amen.